Hoffman, and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Bo. And the last time we chatted, we talked about anxiety and fear, what they are, how they're different, and why they happen. And we started out at a bird's eye view of these processes without getting too far into the weeds. But since you study neuronal circuits in the brain, Ian, why don't we uh, discuss what scientists know about the circuitry of anxiety and fear today? Sounds good. Yeah, let's go into the weeds this time. And not too much, though. I think what we should do is just focus on a few particular parts of a much broader circuit so that we don't fall victim like to having way too many uh, names to focus on. Like, like when I read a book, right, that introduces, like, a huge number of new characters all at once, I find it super difficult to keep up with, like, who's who. And so I'm thinking we'll just focus on a few characters here that are part of a broader circuit. Okay, so as someone who's interested in the brain but doesn't necessarily spend the time to learn all the structures involved in various aspects of consciousness, when I think of anxiety and fear, the main part of the brain that I hear about that's been brought up is the amygdala. Yeah, that, that's good. So, so the amygdala is part of the brain that's very close to another well-known part of the brain called the hippocampus, which, by the way, was named hippocampus because it reminded old-school anatomists of a seahorse, and the amygdala resembled almonds. And so these two structures are actually next-door neighbors, uh, and along with a, a variety of other structures, form a broader circuit that, in, in part, regulates mood states. Keep in mind, though, that both the amygdala and the hippocampus, as well as like most other brain regions that you might have heard of, like the prefrontal cortex or the thalamus, for example, aren't just big, homogenous parts of the brain. Many, many different substructures comprise each of them. So there are certain little regions within the amygdala that will have specialized functions. One, for example, might send signals to the rest of the brain that increase anxiety, while another part of the amygdala might have the opposite effect each one of those substructures will be activated at different times. So it's not like the whole amygdala will be active to generate fear. Instead, one area might be activated when you see a bear running towards you or something. Then, if the bear trips and tears what turns out to be a bear costume and a naked guy comes out of the costume, then like another part of the amygdala that reduces fear might become active while the part that increases fear becomes inactive. Also, these aren't the only structures involved in regulating anxiety. Just like almost every other facet of consciousness, anxiety and fear and stress are all byproducts of a variety of circuits within the brain interacting with one another. So it's a very widely held myth that the amygdala is the, quote, fear center or or the anxiety center, and that dopamine-producing cells, like in the ventral midbrain, are, are, quote, like, reward centers. To say any aspect of consciousness comes from just one particular part of the brain is almost always going to be wrong. Instead, there's a reward circuit, a fear circuit, and an anxiety circuit. And much of the work of modern neuroscience, my work included, is focused on mapping out each of the participants of all of these various circuits, and then trying to identify how each of them interact with one another to encode various facets of consciousness. And as we said last time, anxiety is really a broad emotional state that influences essentially all aspects of behavior and can guide perception and cognition. It's involved in everything from pain and parenting to addiction, aggression, and depression. Have you ever heard like like a rhythmic, super high-pitched, squeaky sound coming from like a sleeping loved one and notice that they're clenching their jaw and grinding their teeth? That's called bruxism, and it can be associated with anxiety, for example. So you can be anxious even in your sleep. That's one way to put it, yeah. So, So remember, anxiety, like all other emotional and cognitive states, is a byproduct of a certain level of activation in a particular network of brain structures right? In a circuit. You can recognize it as anxiety when you're awake, though perhaps not always, right? Because it can be kind of subtle sometimes too. 
But since you're unconscious when you're asleep, it's much more difficult to recognize as the brain activity, right? Because you're not consciously responding to environmental stimuli in a way that's being influenced by that elevated anxiety signal. But if that circuit is particularly active for any of a variety of reasons while you're sleeping, perhaps you'll be more likely to have like an aversive dream or, or a nightmare. However, because it's happening, whether it registers as a bad dream or not, other parts of your body can still respond to that signal. And bruxism or teeth grinding is one example of your anxiety circuit being active despite the circuitry necessary for being awake being inactive. Okay, that's really interesting. And we should probably or definitely talk about dreams on a future episode because it comes up so many times whenever you're on a periscope. But first, let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that you said about anxiety influencing uh, beyond simple moods. Like you said, it influences parenting. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's helpful to keep in mind that activity in all of the various circuits influences each other in some way, sometimes quite significantly due to direct connections, but more often indirectly by influencing a wider network that more subtly alters the activities of many circuits. Anxiety is a good example of such a brain state. As, as we said in the last episode, it's tweaking a wide variety of brain structures to better prepare you to deal with a threat or, or a challenge in the environment that you've learned to expect may turn out badly for you if you don't take some action to avoid this possible negative future outcome. So what might be an example of how circuits more directly involved in anxiety influence something like parenting? Well, in, in this case, the circuitry that uh, we're focused on for these recent discussions, like, like the amygdala, the extended amygdala, they include brain structures that have also been implicated in both like reproductive behavior and parenting in sort of simpler mammals. So, for example, connections between regions of the amygdala that are closer to the front and the midline of the brain, and another area of the, of the brain called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, they appear to mediate behavioral arousal to stimuli that signals the presence of a sexually receptive female nearby. And these same structures have been implicated in determining anxiety levels. Similarly, brain structures implicated in behaviors that are associated with like parenting-specific behaviors, like grooming and caring for offspring, have also been implicated in anxiety. So, m much like humans, rats behave in certain ways that are specific to interacting with their offspring. For example, if, if separated from her little pups, a mother rat will work to gather them together back into her nest, and she'll like nuzzle them, she'll smell them, and she'll just sort of have a general preference to be physically close to them. Obviously, this isn't all that dissimilar from human parents. Well, the brain structure we just said is implicated in the awareness of a potentially aroused female in the area, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. It exhibits increased markers of being active during maternal behaviors. And it turns out that if we inactivate that structure in particular, rats will stop exhibiting those motherly behaviors. And you also said that anxiety influences levels of aggression. So I suppose that's not too surprising. It's kind of like uh, it primes the fight-or-flight response, which makes you more sensitive to the environment to help you make a decision to either fight or flee because you're detecting a threat of some sort. Uh, do we know where in the brain these interactions occur? We actually have a pretty good idea, yeah. So, so aggression is another one of those very primitive emotional states that we rely upon to deal with environmental stimuli that might represent a threat of some sort. Because it's one of those very primitive responses, it can be triggered by a variety of things. And, and heightened anxiety is just one, right? Another kind of stimulus that can trigger aggression, though, is that that's entirely irrational, right, is pain. And pain, anxiety, and aggression are all closely linked together in the brain. Like, like here's a, a personal example. 
So I've definitely gone from being like a calm cucumber directly to Hulk smash mode when I stub my pinky toe on a couch like by mistake. I literally get angry at the couch as though it like betrayed me somehow. Like it should know better than to attack my feet. And now it deserves to be dealt even more damage than it did to me so it never does it again, right? The primitive circuitry in my brain wants to teach this nefarious and inanimate object a a lesson, right? Of course, the more rational part of my brain recognizes that this is some seriously primitive thinking, right? But because it is so primitive, the entire emotional and behavioral cascade is activated almost without the more complicated and conscious aspects of, of me, right, even knowing it. The pain occurs, and I immediately not only want to defend myself, but I want to make sure to overcompensate with aggression to ensure that whatever attacked me knows it should never mess with my toes again, right? The pain is likely activating the same circuitry that would be activated if I were like a non-human primate, you know, hanging out with my family, and some unfamiliar animal surprise attacks me, right, with a punch to the back of the head or something. And so now it's time to go into survival mode and defend my family, right? But in this case, the circuitry is being activated by a couch, <laughs> Okay, so I have a really similar reaction, although maybe not so much Hulk mode, uh, but more that I hate myself for putting this stupid couch here and because I have no one else to blame other than me. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, that's probably like a more evolved response. (laughs) And do we know the particular brain structures involved in these responses? Well, as we discussed in the last podcast, the extended amygdala has been implicated in, in tying like emotional, sensory or pain processes and behavioral outputs together to encode aggression. So, uh, for example, uh, an important component of the extended amygdala circuit, right, that bed nucleus of the stria terminalis that we just talked about, it's been strongly associated with levels of aggression. And different types of signaling within this structure will be associated with different levels of aggression. So like high levels of a certain form of the estrogen receptor, the, the alpha type, that is associated with higher levels of aggression in certain rodents. An estrogen receptor. So does estrogen cycle in rodents like it does in humans during the menstrual cycle? That's a great point. Yes, it does. But while the menstrual cycle in humans is around 28 days, mice have an estrous cycle that lasts about four days. And there are enough differences between these cycles in rodents and in humans that can make it pretty tough to make direct and simple comparisons from discoveries concerning these cycles in rodents directly to humans. But researchers have shown that aggression appears to increase and decrease during particular points along their cycle. And these changes in levels of aggression tend to track with levels of neuronal activation in parts of the extended amygdala, in particular that bed nucleus of the stria terminalis as well as another area towards the front of the brain called the lateral septum. So, while the specific relationships between cycling hormone levels during the the rodent estrous cycles and human menstrual cycles aren't easily compared, it's a pretty strong indication that hormonal levels have a direct influence over aggression, quite possibly, in part at least, by influencing the activities of these same brain structures. Similarly, in males, uh, though, who, who don't have that same kind of hormonal cycling, Studies have shown that levels of testosterone in that bed nucleus of the stria terminalis are associated with aggression as well. If scientists inhibit a certain enzyme called aromatase, which is responsible for converting various hormonal structures that are androgens, testosterone being one, to estradiol, levels of aggression change. So in other words, this enzyme converts testosterone to estrogen. And when scientists inhibited the action of this enzyme in the same brain structure, again, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, which will act to increase testosterone levels by preventing it from being converted to estrogen, what they saw was increased aggression in male mice. 
So this brain structure and the circuit more broadly likely integrates brain signals associated with threat detection in the form of fear, the expectation of fear or anxiety, or pain, and then delivers signals to the rest of the brain to determine whether an animal should become aggressive to deal with whatever the threat might be. Okay, so that's aggression, which can be caused by anxiety. But what about things like anxiety disorders or depression that's caused by prolonged anxiety? It's not like everyone who's anxious is super aggressive, right? A lot of the time, they can be more reserved. Yeah, absolutely. Aggression is just one potential behavior that the brain might select as the best way to deal with or prevent what you expect might be some bad outcome in the future, right? Like another might be to flee or to take more specific steps to avoid these outcomes, like studying, for example, or learning how to fight. But because modern stressors aren't the same as those that initially sculpted the evolution of the homo sapien brain, our brain is challenged to interpret subtler challenges and stressors that are perhaps like less predictable or controllable. We know, for example, that trauma associated with post-traumatic stress disorder requires the experience of witnessing uh, like a potential death or a severe injury or threat to the well-being of oneself or, or another person. And for this experience to be traumatic and associated with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, the event must induce feelings of helplessness or horror. And again, we can learn about how these processes occur in the human brain by exploring how they occur in simpler brains. Of course, we can't like determine like the quality of an animal's emotional experience, right? But we observe changes in animal behavior that appear to resemble the more complicated changes in human behavior that occur after trauma. So some examples are like rodents will exhibit what we call learned helplessness following exposure to an uncontrollable and unpredictable stressor. These are things... Uh, like increases in fear and anxiety-associated behaviors, or, or reduced fight-or-flight responses, or disrupted sleep, or disrupted food and water intake, and a general failure to learn to escape negative environmental events, even when the escape is quite possible. They're just kind of giving up in general. They're resigned to the fact that negative things are just likely going to happen, and there's little they can do about it. Another example is called conditioned defeat, which follows social defeats. If a rodent is routinely exposed to another more dominant and aggressive rodent, its behavior will begin to change in predictable ways. They'll lose their typical aggressive responses, and they'll display more submissive behaviors, even to rodents that are smaller than them and totally non-aggressive. It's as though they begin acting as though they could never behave in a dominant way. And another example is called fear conditioning. And this is simpler. It's, it's where a rodent can learn something negative, like, like a little electrical zap, is going to happen whenever they hear a certain sound or enter a certain room. And this is generally a simpler process in the brain. The, the brain is just associating a certain sensory stimulus, like a sound or a room, with a certain environmental event. If you've ever heard of Pavlov's dogs, where Pavlov trained his dogs to expect a delicious meal whenever he rang a bell, fear conditioning is the same kind of thing. I suppose that's not all surprising, right? They're basically learning that they just can't control this negative event in their environment or that they lose when they go up against another member of their species or to predict that something they don't like is about to happen. Yeah, that's right. And we've mapped out major parts of the circuitry underlying these learning processes. And we see many of the same structures we've been talking about being significantly involved in encoding anxiety. If scientists inactivate the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, a familiar structure now that we've discussed as being involved in parenting and aggression, along with other parts of the extended amygdala circuit, if they inactivate it just prior to introducing a mouse that's been socially defeated to a new, non-aggressive mouse, they don't observe those changes in behavior associated with learning that they always lose when they go up against another mouse. Also, 
that mouse will be less able to learn helplessness as well. In, in other words, they don't apply that expectation of defeat to mice that aren't likely to defeat them. Similarly, if scientists inactivate a certain area of the amygdala itself, mice just aren't as able to learn that a certain room or a certain sound is going to be associated with some negative stimulus. So they're just less able to learn that fear conditioning. They hear a tone or see a light that they've been trained will soon be followed by a little shock or something like that, but they don't learn to expect that shock. But interestingly, inactivation of the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis has zero effect on fear conditioning, right, that the amygdala plays a big role in, and inactivation of the amygdala has zero apparent effect on learned helplessness or conditioned defeat. In other words, these two parts of the same exact circuit appear to be necessary for different sides of the same fear and anxiety coin. Like, it could be the case that certain regions of the amygdala mediate short-term reactions to immediate and unfamiliar aversive stimuli while the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis may be critical to longer-term behavioral changes in familiar situations. So fear and anxiety are part of a very similar learning process. Feelings of intense fear are produced by one part of the circuit, and those signals influence another part of the circuit to cause longer-term learning to take place. And that learning is what underlies future anxiety. Okay, that's pretty wild. So anxiety influences all of these processes, and it's closely linked with fear. What about less emotional processes in the brain? Like, does it affect things like your ability to solve critical thinking problems? Is being highly anxious a bad thing before taking the SATs or something like that? Well, that, that's a great question. So whether it's beneficial or detrimental is pretty hard to say, right? So if you have, like, zero anxiety, uh, maybe you're less likely to prepare yourself for the test, Right. But studies have shown that levels of anxiety do seem to influence cognitive style and cognitive strategy selection. What do you mean by cognitive strategy? Is that what it sounds like? Like thought patterns? Yeah, pretty much. They're like methods that we learn to use to confront particular problems. Like, for example, imagine if someone walked up to you and asked you why their business isn't making as much money as it used to. There are a variety of strategies that you might use to try and uncover the root cause. You can think about costs, revenues, and margins, right? The financial gears of the business. Or maybe you might think about changes in marketing or how the customer base might be changing the way it uses the company's products, right? Both of those strategies might get you to the same conclusion, but your brain will make decisions regarding which strategy it's going to use first. And like maybe a simpler example is just how people add numbers together, like adding 55 and 57. Right? You could just straight up picture the numbers in your head as though you're writing it out and sum up the digits. Right? You could also add 50 and 50 together and then 5 and 7 and sum those two separate mini additions. Or you could add 55 and 55 together and then just add 2. Right? You could even just picture a pile of 55 $1 poker chips and a separate pile of 57 $1 poker chips and then just picture how many would be in a pile if both were combined. And, and I say that last one because as a side note, um, I've spoken to some people who have a certain kind of synesthesia, and, and that's when sensory and cognitive processes are, are sort of abnormally connected, which we're definitely going to talk about in the future. But they often use more imagery-based strategies to handle numbers. And I just I find that whole thing like thoroughly captivating. <laughs> but, but anyways, all of these are, are slightly different strategies, right, to get to the same ultimate answer. And, and no strategy is necessarily the best for everyone. And I know it seems pretty strange, but high levels of anxiety do seem to influence people's cognitive styles and uh, strategy choice. In fact, a group here in Philly, 
uh, at, at Drexel University, as well as other groups, you know, at other universities, have found that mood states like anxiety will influence other circuitry involved in cognition in such a way as to promote more analytical problem solving rather than relying on spontaneous insights or, or what, you know, some people might call a more creative, less, less kind of regimented strategy. This team did some brain imaging studies using fMRI, which is a technique that enables us to see changes in how much energy neurons are consuming moment to moment which is correlated with changes in neuronal signaling in the brain. They used this technique with humans, and they found that activity in an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex is involved in both mood-associated processes as well as cognitive, like problem-solving associated circuitry. Now, the, the anterior cingulate cortex is like a massive part of the front of the brain. And to me, as a person who does like smaller scale circuit-based research that focuses on a smaller scale than the general areas of the brain that the techniques used in these types of studies can identify, to, to me, what this suggests is that there are certain substructures within this larger anterior cingulate area that are responsible for being sensitive to mood processes versus problem-solving processes, right? But, but uh, that's almost beside the point. The point, which is kind of unintuitive to a lot of people, I think, is that your mood doesn't just influence how you feel about your day. It influences the strategies you're going to use to solve new problems that require critical thinking. So, like, imagine a person who's been working at her job for five years, right? She's totally competent, good at her work, pleasant to be around, makes almost no mistakes, and compensates for them when she does, right? The perfect employee. And she demonstrates solid leadership skills when the opportunities present themselves. Now... Then imagine that she also suffers from like generalized anxiety disorder and such that there's always this voice in the back of her head telling her that something bad is about to happen. This dull hum of anxiety will change the way that she'll solve various problems like how to get a promotion because it biases her cognitive style in a way that favors avoiding conflict. Of course, this isn't specific to females, right? This is true for males as well, right? That's not the point. The point is that mood states, particularly one like anxiety, they have ramifications that extend beyond just feeling crappy and stressed out all day. It can influence everything from the problem-solving strategies that you'll tend to use to how you interact socially. I guess that shouldn't be surprising either, especially when you talk about how everything in the brain in terms of circuitry and all these circuits influence the activities of many other circuits. It makes sense that mood would influence a bunch of other things beyond just how good or bad you feel. Right, right, exactly. So that's precisely why we have mood at all, right, in the first place. Mood is how our brain determines whether some change in the environment, be it meeting a new person or, like, being burned by a red-hot stove or, or, like, failing a class in school. And our brain uses memories of these moods to help determine better future behaviors to make sure that it reduces the likelihood that those bad mood signals ever occur again. So what about when people start taking drugs or get addicted to drugs? I assume that moods like anxiety and stress and fear play a big role in why people get addicted, right? Um, I remember in the past podcast episode when we talked about theories for why people get addicted to drugs, some of which I actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was either the Coop Camp right. or the Wise Camp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that makes, so one of these makes people think that uh, getting a, addicted to a drug is going to get rid of the bad moods, right? I know I'm simplifying it a lot, but I hope I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. So, so without repeating some of the details on addiction that we discussed in the past, I think pretty much all addiction neuroscientists and physicians will agree 
that anxiety and stress play central roles in addiction, regardless of whether they are the initial cause, right? So when people stop taking the drug to which they become addicted, you know, be it alcohol, nicotine, heroin, or, or Xanax, they'll experience bad emotional states that are directly related to fear, anxiety, and stress. And research is demonstrating that the same circuitry involved in the anxiety and fear we've discussed, including like the extended amygdala circuit, are definitely involved in these feelings of increased anxiety during drug withdrawal. So, for, for example, studies have shown that some of the st uh, structures we've discussed today are directly involved in withdrawal. Let me guess. The bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. <laughs> well done. That's right. It turns out that if scientists block a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine from binding receptors in the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, they reduce levels of anxiety that are caused by drug withdrawal. The norepinephrine in this case is being released by another part of the brain that's actually pretty far away. It's, it's nestled in the brain stem, actually in the medulla oblongata, uh, called the nucleus of the solitary tract, or, or nucleus tractus solitarius. This brain stem structure sends signals all throughout the brain. It participates in a wide variety of processes as a result, including like the gag reflex, coughing, you know, as well as mood. And when it comes to mood, among its various circuit partners are both the amygdala and the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis and it releases norepinephrine on those structures. And, and so blocking these signals when an animal is experiencing drug withdrawal is capable of reducing the anxiety that's caused by drug withdrawal. And so by the way, just interesting aside, the solitary tract uh, nucleus receives signals from all over the body, like areas associated with the gastrointestinal system, the cardiovascular system, and, and like the lungs, and even olfaction, like taste. So it's like an important part of the brain that, lo that ties together body states with emotional states. It takes information about the status of the body and it sends information to parts of the brain involved in mood. And so, you know, also, when an animal is taking an addictive drug for a long period of time, signals uh, from areas within the amygdala that end up in our, our friend, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, those signals increase over time. And an area in the amygdala starts to release even more of a different neurotransmitter that many people probably haven't heard of called CRF, which stands for corticotropin releasing hormone. So th this area within the amygdala starts releasing CRF onto the bed nucleus, as well as other extended uh, amygdala circuit components. So, so in other words, as someone takes a drug that's known to be addictive for an extended period of time, they're not aware of it, but their brain is changing over that time. And one of those changes is increases in the amount of a certain neurotransmitter that the amygdala releases. Scientists think that this increase in that neurotransmitter in the amygdala might be what makes people more sensitive to anxiety and stress when they stop taking that addictive drug. And so that's why people, well, that's part of the reason for why people feel so anxious when they stop smoking cigarettes, for example, or, or drinking alcohol. The brain just elevated the anxiety signals in this circuit because the addictive drug was suppressing it so much. That's a pretty freaky thought, that those long-term changes in the brain that we talked about last time are so directly influenced by how much of a substance a person takes. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's just weird to think that this molecule is basically redecorating your brain without you even knowing it. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and like we said last time, your brain is changing all the time. Over uh, the course of, of just listening to this conversation, for example, right, levels of various neurotransmitters have absolutely changed in listeners' brains. Probably a bit more GABAergic transmission, right, when I went into that solitary track nucleus bit. Uh, but the point is that it's constantly changing, regardless of what you do. But it's the nature of those changes that determines your future behavior. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so we've talked about aggression, parenting, thinking strategies. 
What about the more straightforward things like pain?、Uh, you said that you go into Hulk mode when you stub your toe. <laughs> Does anxiety influence how you feel pain? I'm picturing people who are super aggressive, or maybe they're just in the zone while playing a sport, not even responding to cuts and bruises they feel, or like action movies when people get punched but they still keep going. <laughs> so, can anxiety have the opposite effect? Absolutely. There is a circuit overlap between structures involved in pain responses and anxiety and stress, as well as stress-induced drug re- relapse. By the way, and so the neurotransmitters we just talked about, norepinephrine and CRF, are all influenced by painful stimuli. Painful stimuli increase CRF in that, that nucleus of the striatus terminalis, for example. And, and remember how animals are capable of fear conditioning. Like if a rat hears a tone and learns that it's always going to be followed by a little shock, it turns out that if you block CRF from binding receptors. In an area of the bed nucleus of the striatus terminalis, they become less capable of learning that association. So, in the last podcast, we talked about whether or not anxiety is inheritable. And when you use the word inheritable, do you mean genetically or learned? I guess it wouldn't be all that surprising if it's possible to learn to be anxious from your parents. But you're always saying that there's no one specific gene for specific emotions or behaviors. That it's always multiple genes that are involved in things like emotions. But is it possible that we can inherit levels of anxiety genetically? So this is becoming one of the hottest subjects of debate within neuroscience. Some recent studies in the past few years have suggested that it might be possible that increased levels of anxiety acquired through experience can be somehow transmitted transgenerationally or, or down. Different、uh, generations of offspring, right? I actually know some of the scientists who performed the experiments, and and trust me when I say they were pretty surprised by the data themselves.、Uh, they were approaching this concept from the perspective of drug addiction. Like we know that drug use can transiently alter the way certain genes are expressed, but the crazier question was whether or not those alterations might be passed onto offspring. It's probably worth like briefly describing how this could be possible. So it involves an area of genetics called epigenetics. Which is a fairly new field that focuses on how certain features of our cells and physiology are influenced by environmental events that can influence when and whether a gene is expressed. Okay, so imagine、uh, that your genome—all approximately three billion pairs of A's and T's, C's and G's—is a very long textbook. Now, imagine if every textbook you've ever used was condensed into one massive textbook that you'd refer to for every class you'd ever taken. Like so, for American history, you'd only use a certain set of chapters, and for biology, you'd use a different set of chapters. Then, in some classes, you don't even always end up reading every page or even every chapter, right? Your professor will end up selecting specific chapters or even parts of chapters to focus on for s- certain sections of class. The way genes are expressed in, in some cells but not in others works kind of similarly. Your epigenome is sort of like the instructions your professor gave you to read only certain pages, right? The epigenome is just a bunch of other molecular codes that instruct the little cellular machines to only express certain genes in your genome at certain times, and it turns off certain genes at、uh, at other times, right? Depending on what the cell does in the body and the experiences of those cells over time, different genes will be active. Well, while your genome doesn't change all that much, your epigenome does change as a function of your experiences. Exposure to certain environmental stimuli, like like the use of drugs, for example, will induce epigenetic changes, and those changes will alter the way your genome is expressed. And this is a totally separate effect from how drugs affect the way you feel, right? Yeah, mostly. So, like the feelings、uh, that you have immediately after drinking a beer will have little to do with the epigenetic changes that beer consumption will induce, but. 
over a period of regular beer consumption, the epigenetic changes may very well change the quality of the experience of future beer consumption. Is that part of why drugs can be addictive as well? We'll definitely cover epigenetics uh, in greater depth at another time because it's emerging as one of the most important new fields in biology. And I don't think anyone would be too surprised if we discover epigenetic components to diseases with elusive causes like Alzheimer's disease and various forms of dementia. But suffice it to say that epigenetics involves many layers of biochemical reactions that occur in cells that make them more sensitive to environmental events and experiences. And there's a possibility that some epigenetic mechanisms are transgenerational. Right. So has it been shown that those changes can be passed to your kids? Should I stop drinking alcohol completely? Should I just move into a room lined with pillows and eat (laughs) salads for the rest of my life? (laughs) Well, some scientists are more convinced than others. We're still in the early days of this line of research, but there's enough evidence to make like a non-trivial number of scientists think that there may be something to that theory. But keep in mind, this directly contradicts genetic dogma that's been accepted for many decades. The common wisdom was that your genome pretty much stays the same no matter what. And even if your genome is altered somehow, certainly your germline genome, the genome of, of sperm and eggs, must stay the same. This research flies directly in the face of that. And so just the fact that more than a handful of scientists are seriously considering this is interesting in and of itself. However, I I wouldn't apply this research to my life just yet. We need a lot more evidence and bigger experiments to be truly convincing because, you know, this is an extraordinary claim and it requires some serious evidence to back it up. Okay, so that's drugs. But what about stress and anxiety? Is it the same story there? Well, it's at a similar stage in terms of being accepted. Some respectable science uh, suggests that it could very well be true, but some major names in science who do epigenetics research themselves aren't uh, so convinced. And so I saw a very well-known scientist in the field of drug addiction and anxiety and depression named Eric Nessler talk about this. It was funny because one of the scientists whose lab performed some of the experiments in support of the theory that high levels of anxiety and stress during life uh, can be transmitted to uh, transgenerationally was in the audience. Of course, you know, they were being pretty playful in their sort of disagreement. I mean, disagreement might be a bit of an exaggeration because, like, even some of Eric Nessler's own lab's experiments support the theory. But, but still, you know, it's always fun to see, like, well-regarded and accomplished scientists disagree in, like, a respectful and fun way. It kind of makes me glad to be, like, a part of this field. Yeah, too bad politicians aren't like that. Yeah, right, exactly. Okay, so what did Eric Nessler say? How likely is it that we can inherit increased levels of stress and anxiety because our parents experienced high levels of them? Well, first, he noted a central problem in the way that we use these terms, like like even the fact that different scientists use different definitions for the term epigenetics itself. But he acknowledged that there is growing evidence in support of at least some role played by transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. So first of all, epigenetic remodeling definitely influences how genes are expressed in neurons. And environmental stimuli alters the architecture of the brain in at least two ways. First, it alters the activities of little cellular machines on the insides of neurons and glia that are are responsible for influencing how genes are expressed by changing how the genes are physically laid out, uh, making them more or less likely to be expressed. Second, environmental stimuli seem to be able to directly alter the activities of little cellular machines that are directly responsible for altering gene expression. And like further complicating this story, there there also would appear to be random or what we call stochastic epigenetic events that alter the architecture of the brain. And so this is like how identical twins, right, with identical genomes 
can have totally different patterns of the wrinkles of their brain, the, the gyri. When we study rodents that are genetically identical with essentially like identical environmental experiences, right? They grew up in the same exact environment. Scientists observe is, uh, some, some rodents will develop to be more susceptible or less susceptible to things like depression and stress. And it's likely that epigenetic changes uh, that appear to be somewhat random seem to play a big role in generating those differences. Okay, so that would suggest that two identical human twins with the exact same genomes, even if they were raised in exactly the same way, might still develop differences in the likelihood that they become depressed. That is what the data suggest. And again, it, you know, it's still early days. And the field is still trying to wrap our heads around these experiments. But it is what the data suggest. Okay, so what about the heritability issue? Are stress and anxiety inheritable? <laughs> right, okay. It, it does seem to be pretty conclusive that stressful life events definitely alter stress susceptibility in subsequent generations. And so here are some examples. Uh, like male mouse pups that experience maternal separation, you know, that, that are removed from their mother very early on in development, they exhibit lifelong increases in vulnerability to stress. And when they reproduce, their offspring will have similar stress vulnerabilities that are higher than mice that don't experience those very early stressful events. This just seems to be true, uh, not just for one generation, but for multiple generations. Another example is that when adult male mice undergo that, that chronic uh, social defeat that we talked about earlier, their offspring are more vulnerable to stress than mice that aren't socially defeated or aren't born to socially defeated fathers. And also, adult male mice, as well as like the mouse equivalent of teenagers, like adolescents, uh, that experience chronic but unpredictable stress, they'll have offspring with alterations of the physiological circuitry that controls stress and anxiety-related hormones and gene expression in areas of the brain that have been implicated in stress, right? Like the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, axis. Is there evidence suggesting that this inheritance process doesn't involve epigenetics? Yeah, definitely, uh, which you know makes things complicated. So first of all, uh, the mechanism of how this could be transgenerational uh, is still pretty unclear. Um, like, let's take one of those regularly stressed out male mice, for example, right, who will have offspring with elevated susceptibility to stress. Their sperm definitely will have altered epigenetic codes. Uh, which would seem like the likely mechanism for how those changes are inherited, right? The problem, though, is that during development, much of these codes are literally erased from, like, sperm uh, uh, genome, from, from the epigenome of the sperm, while the embryo is, is developing, right? So if the code is erased, how could that possibly transfer the changes that the father had? And so another point of skepticism is a bit broader and perhaps maybe more problematic. Uh, let's take that same male mouse, right, that was stressed out, who will have offspring that are at risk for higher levels of stress and anxiety. It turns out that if scientists perform in vitro fertilization with his sperm with a female mouse that has never met him, right, that elevated risk doesn't seem to be transmitted nearly as effectively. So in other words, if the two mice never meet, the offspring don't appear to be as vulnerable to stress and anxiety as they will be if the stressed out male actually physically mates with the female. They still seem to have higher susceptibilities, but just not as high. And so further complicating this issue, though, is that if the female mates with the male mouse that's vasectomized, right, so he's not contributing sperm to the process, and then that female is artificially inseminated with a stressed out father mouse's sperm, then the transmission of susceptibility is more successful. That's crazy. Yeah, so it's a pretty complicated picture here. And Nestler argues that there's almost certainly a major behavioral component to the transmission 
of susceptibility to anxiety and stress. And there's probably a role played by epigenetic changes as well, but that perhaps the behaviors involved in the transmission are more important and maybe even very subtle, right? So like it wouldn't just be your mother and father teaching you to be more anxious by explicitly telling you that bad things will happen, but by like subtler observations of their nonverbal communication and things like that. It's been pretty well established that different types of maternal care, for example, can have very long-lasting effects on anxiety and stress in offspring. So distinguishing behavioral components from epigenetic components will be very tricky and will demand some pretty elegant science. But it's a very interesting area of ongoing research that'll basically help us to understand how our life experiences and, the, and, and choices that we make influence those of our children and even our children's children. Okay, so given that you're currently studying anxiety and addiction... I'm assuming that, like the genetics and epigenetics we just talked about, we still don't completely understand all of the underlying circuits yet. Like, I'm betting there's more to it than just the amygdala, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, (laughs) and the solitary nucleus. Nicely done. (laughs) That's right. Most of the structures and circuits we just discussed have been implicated in anxiety, fear, and stress for many years now though the particular relationships between them are still areas of ongoing research that use newer, better tools to get more and more specific. But there are undoubtedly structures involved in determining your levels of anxiety, as well as your predispositions to anxiety, and how you behave as a result, that have yet to be identified. The brain structures that I'm studying are at least as ancient as like the extended amygdala circuit, right? The amygdala. Um, and, and there's some good evidence to suggest that they play uh, major roles in the anxiety we feel when we're withdrawing from drugs like nicotine and alcohol and, and heroin, um, as well as when we just expect something bad to happen. And as we begin to expand beyond the amygdala and the extended amygdala, we're approaching the boundary of our current understanding of how emotion, cognition, and behavior all interact with one another. And it's the interaction between these systems that's what makes human consciousness so special. Our brain has such a huge repertoire of potential interactions, way more than any other animal we've ever encountered. And and from that comes the huge range of amazing and beautiful achievements that we as a species have accomplished in our short time of having like mature consciousness on the planet. But it's also what can cause some of the most terrible atrocities, the severe suffering and misery that humans are also capable of experiencing inflicting upon each other. They both emerge from how the brains of individuals are sculpted by the genes they inherit and their environments to generate behaviors that are motivated by a desire to avoid negative future outcomes and maximize pleasant, satisfying, and and fulfilling outcomes. This can result in wonderful works of humanism, like like the Declaration of the Rights of Man and and the Citizen, right, or the Declaration of Human Rights by the UN, right, Or, or medical achievements like vaccines and antibiotics, or even wonderful works of art and literature. But it can also result in violence, bigotry, and abuse. So this is the kind of work that, once completed, will not only help us to better understand who we are and what we're capable of, but it will also enable us to reduce that suffering and prevent those atrocities, and perhaps that will allow us to access the best versions of ourselves and our societies. It's going to take a ton of work and many years, but I think that we'll get there, and we're going to learn a lot along the way.